Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Well, hey, how's it going to everybody? This weekend, we had a marriage conference at CBC, and I got to sit like right there with my wife. And there's not a lot of times that I sit in this building and I'm taught two. Normally, my job is to teach two people. And um, it was great because each week we come together and, and do this thing that we're about to do, where we talk about how our culture is just really critical. And our jobs as followers of Jesus in this space is the trust that God has something for us this morning to ask the Holy Spirit to move and to set aside our criticalness and and try to be contributors to the conversation of faith. And so through the six or seven sessions, that was my prayer. I got to sit there and do exactly what I tell you people to do each and every week. I got to pray that God uses the words of these men and women to inform me and to strengthen my marriage that, that I might tap into what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach me, whether I've heard the passages before or not. And so we start every Sunday at CBC when we do the message and we just take a little bit, a minute and we pray because we want to be contributors to the conversation of faith because God is good and his Holy Spirit is here and he will teach us and show us his goodness this morning through the book of Titus. So I'm going to lead some prayer. I'm going to ask that you uh, say a silent prayer to yourself, just that the Holy Spirit might do some work in you and he might do some work through me. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful each and every Sunday that the world is busy and chaotic and we can come back here and reset our priorities around something that's worthy of our lives and our worship. So this morning, Holy Spirit, help us to focus on the things that really matter, on the goodness of God and how we show that to others. I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you speak to us through the scripture that you speak to our spirit and inform us of not only God's goodness, but how we can live out rhythmically the beauty of the gospel that we're going to talk about today. If you're comfortable with it, just take the next few seconds and say a silent prayer that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning. I'd ask that you pray for me. Just say a prayer that God might use my preparation to show people, not me at all, but his goodness and his glory and his gospel today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 4 today, this week. My favorite thing in the entire year happened. Literally, my favorite moment of the year happened this week. And I'm born on Christmas because I want to be just like Jesus, okay? And and this week, something happened, that moment in Texas when you realize that summer is dead, summer is dead. Oh, thank God, summer is dead, you know? And you walk outside and you realize, like, it's the Christmas crispness and smell of fall. In the morning, I got up two mornings ago and it was like 48 degrees. And in my pajamas, I walked outside and just stood there and smiled. And my neighbor said, please go back to East Dallas. Um, 
It's this beautiful moment, and every time this moment hits, this is how I know I'm stepping firmly into the prime of middle age. There's one trip I want to take right now in the world. There's one trip I want to get in a car, I want to fly into New York City, and I want to drive up the coast through Connecticut, Vermont, and New Hampshire, and I want to see the leaves changing colors. In middle age, exciting is foliage, everybody, all right? (laughs) I understand what that says about me. I don't care. I I do not care. Judge me all you want. I'm way harder on myself. But this is the trip I want to take. And I think I was talking to a friend this week about why I want to take this trip. And and I'm going to LA this next weekend for my little brother's kid's baptism. And that's going to be a good trip. But you know what the difference between flying to LA and taking a road trip somewhere fun? It's just the freedom you have. When you fly somewhere, you get in a cattle car and you go somewhere, you have to be somewhere at a certain time and they tell you where to go and how quickly to go and the whole time you're trying not to get your kids to lose it on a plane. When you get in a car and drive, you have all the freedom in all the world to do whatever, whenever, wherever you want. And I love that. I just don't think that's a me thing. I think we as Western individualist Americans, we love our freedom. It's hardwired into our DNA. The most cited work ever about the history of the United States and our country is by a Frenchman named Alex de Tocqueville. In 1831, he came over from France to study the prison system in America. And what he ended up doing was staying here for about five years, and he wrote a book called Democracy in America, and he talked about what we value and why we value it. It has never gone out of print since then. It's one of the best-selling books in the world and the most quoted book about the United States of America. And he said this about Americans. He said, they owe nothing to any man. They expect nothing from any man. They acquire the habit of always considering themselves as standing alone. And they are apt to imagine that their whole destiny is in their own hands. Get in a car and drive and you create your own life, right? Right? I think this deep embeddedness of individual freedom started way back in the day and runs the course through all of our DNAs. And it's higher in our culture than I'd say any other culture in the world. In 2013, Gallup did a poll and they asked Americans, what are we really, really, really good at? And we came back and said, we're good at three things better than anybody else in the world. They said, we're good at number one, individual freedoms. Number two, we said we're better at quality of life. And number three, opportunities for all people. We know we love our freedoms. And it lines up really well with the gospel because when you talk about Jesus, when you talk about the scriptures, what a prevailing theme in all of that is freedom. Freedom from bondage, freedom from sin, freedom from Old Testament law, Galatians 5, for freedom I've set you free so that we don't have to live under the oppressive weight of like 613 laws in the Old Testament. Freedom from the fact that you don't have to do something to earn the love of God. It's given because God is love. That's a huge freedom. That's the, the basis of our gospel. And that's what separates our religion from all the other ones. You can't earn God's love. He gives it to you through Jesus. That's it. So you can stop trying, but keep living in the rhythms of God because you understand grace. It's this beautiful idea that freedom is testament. Freedom is paramount to the gospel. But... Sometimes freedom comes at a cost. Sometimes freedom might send the wrong message about the God that we follow. Because in our culture, we are given so many different freedoms. The question becomes then, when does our pursuit of freedoms stop pointing people to the goodness of God? And that's where we're at in Titus 2 today. He's making this case for this family environment in in 1 through 3. And he starts with older people. And we defined older last week as... 
one year older than you. And so we looked at older people last week and he said, hey, you guys are gonna set example for younger people. And we came across this principle that gospel-centered communities need godly examples. That's the fundamental bedrock of how we do this thing. And today he shifts his focus from the older among us to the younger among us. And just as a reminder, what he's doing in this passage, one through 10 is one section. And what Paul is doing as he's writing is he's taking a system of living that's already in place. And he's saying, hey, this is how your life is broken up in Crete right now. Let me show you how the gospel shines through all those things. So when he says older and younger and he's going to get to slaves, he's, he's taking this system and saying, no, no, the gospel, what it does is it doesn't reinvent the wheel. It repurposes and reveals the goodness of God in the systems already in place. It's very important. And why that's very important is because fundamentally, if we think that God can only flourish in certain systems and God is not bigger than all systems, the gospel that we follow can work in monarchies, in democracies, in tyrannies. The gospel that we follow has worked in all these different systems, Democrat, Republican, come on now. The gospel that we follow is bigger than any one individual or civilization. And that is hopeful for me, for now, and for the future. I need to know that my God is bigger than my systems around me. And so what Paul does is he enters into the system in first century Crete and says, this is how you're divided. Let me show you how the gospel flourishes in the system that you're already in. We're going to see that when we get to slavery. And he doesn't just say, stop it, you know? He says there's a way that the gospel is made beautiful in this system and in this structure. And so the implication here is as he's marching through these different cultural definitions that they have that are already in place, he's saying this is how the gospel is seen in all of them whether you're older or whether you're younger. And so what he does is he starts in, go to verse four. He's talking to the older women and he tags it from the last phrase and says, hey, in this way, they will, the women will train the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, fulfilling their duties at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Okay, a couple things here. One is it's important to understand that he's speaking to a structure already in place. I've heard this taught before and people can say things like, this is why women need to stay home. I would not say that. I do not believe that. I want to stay married everybody. All right. <laughs> but you have to understand in this system, what he's doing is he's saying that, that what they valued in the first century world was really the, the centrality of the family unit. It drove their cultures. And so when he speaks to women here, what he gives is six different characteristics and then a seventh. And those six are coupled in twos. Love your husband, love your kids. Be self-controlled and pure. And then he goes on to say that you're going to be um, busy at the home and kind. And those are all connected together. He's making this case for the fact that if you get married, love your households. That's it. And what that means is, whether you have a job now or don't have a job now, love your households. He's using this system in this place to remind them how the gospel is seen beautifully throughout their different cultural divisions. And so what he actually lays out there, those six characteristics in the first century world, were like the top six things you'd look for as a dude and a woman, right? I want my wife to be, and then fill in the blank with these six things. I want them to love me and love my kid. I want them to be self-controlled and pure. I want them to love our house. I don't want them to be kind. And then the men would be like, and I want them to listen to me, right? And so what he's doing is he's laying out what attraction looks like in the first century world. And we do the same thing. At the conference this weekend, I was talking to my wife afterwards. And this woman got up there and said, you know, I, I, I wear tight clothes to church because my husband likes that. 
And Sarah and I started talking about kind of different things that we've worn. And back when we were dating, <clears throat> she had these shorts and they were awful, okay? They had like chests on them and they were kind of boxy and they had like some suitcases and they were bright red. And I told her, I think those are horrible. And she said, I know. And she wore them more, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, lucky to be here today, everybody. And it got us talking about what attracted us to one another and, and what we valued in that. And in the first century world, they had a list of things that, that were attractive in spouses and, and we do today. I came across an article that talked about how attraction has changed in America in the last hundred years. And they talked through what was valuable in 1939 as opposed to what was valuable today, what we look for. For example, the idea right now that number one on the list is mutual love and affection. And that really didn't hit the list about the mid-1980s. In 1939, the idea that you have a mutual attraction or love for one another that's physically inclined was number five as opposed to number one today. Dependable character was number two. Your desire for home and children was number seven back then, and it's number four today, probably because it was more normative back then. And, and finally, in the five spot was education and intellect, and in 1939, that was number nine. Our idea of what's attractive has changed, and so what Paul is doing is he's saying, this is how you would define an attractive spouse. Be an attractive spouse to your wife within the confines of the culture that you live. You gotta understand a couple things about women in that time. In general, especially Christian women. So because it was a pretty repressive culture for women in the first century world, we've talked about it at length where women weren't really people, they were property. Jesus comes along and does some pretty radical things. Jesus says, you can actually follow me. You can actually take the posture of a disciple. You can actually be used in my church as leaders, as prophets, as, as all of these things. I can use you to tell people about my goodness, which was extremely radical. And so you see examples in Timothy and in Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and chapter uh, 12 and 14. You see examples of, of Paul saying, hey, guys, I love that you have women as women have all this newfound freedom in Christ, but, but don't let that come in the way of people seeing Christ in the first place. <laughs> like you have been given this freedom and that's amazing, but just remember that the purpose of your freedom is to point to Jesus goes back to my buddy that was a pastor. I told this example a while ago and he was in a heavy metal band because he didn't like good music. And he was in a heavy metal band. He's a pastor of a church. And this is when I was in grad school at Wheaton and he had sleeves, right? Tats all in his arm. And each week he wore long sleeve shirts to preach in. I said, what are you doing? Be you, man. Everything, you can have tattoos. It's going to be a good thing. You need to grow your people, you know? And he looked at me and said, if they see my tattoos and not Jesus, what's the point? And I was like 22, thought I knew everything. Um, I didn't. And that's a really good indication here of, of what Paul is telling his people. He's saying, no, you're going to love your husbands and your kids because through that people will see Jesus. And, and when you parse it out a little bit, when it talks about the idea of loving your husband and children, you got to understand how radical that was. You might think that's the first thing we look for. But in a first century world where they didn't marry for love, they married for status. And it probably wasn't their decision. It was their parents. The fact that you'd go to an arranged marriage and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to choose to love your husband and your kids. They probably thought, well, I didn't want to be here in the first place. Most marriages were usually 10 years apart. Something like a 23 to 25 year old man and a 13 year old girl. And you go to that girl and you said, no, no, here's what I want you to do because you know Jesus. I want you to love your husband and your kids. 
not, not just emotionally, but you're going to wake up every morning and you're going to make the decision to choose to love them. Like every day, God makes the decision to choose to love us. It's a beautiful picture in the first century of the power of the gospel and it shows a picture of how we're supposed to operate and our marriages are supposed to point people back to the goodness of God, especially today. In a culture where desire defines love, Paul's telling them that you're not going to be defined by a desirous love, but instead make it a choice that you can wake up to and choose to show that God will always love you. So he says to these women, younger women, hey, you want to know what it looks like in your life to love and follow Jesus? Choose. Choose every day to love your husbands and love your kids. And he goes on to say, not just love your husbands and love your kids, but be self-controlled um, and pure. And in that context, it was really all about sexual purity there. In the first century world, especially in Crete, there was a women's liberal movement that basically said they could have the right to step out on their husbands sexually whenever they wanted because husbands had that right in Rome. So in Rome, there actually wasn't a law against or any reason against adultery for men. They could do it whenever and wherever they wanted, but women couldn't. And so in Crete, they started to see more and more women try to follow the pattern of men. And uh, Paul's saying here that just because society says it's okay doesn't mean it's good. Don't. Stay pure to your husband and pure to your family. And then he finishes by saying, uh, love your home duties or fulfilling your duties at home and be kind. And that word kind there in the Greek is just the Greek word for good. He's saying, be good at running the household, you know? and enjoy it. I get back to my, my least favorite thing to do, literally, my least favorite thing to do is laundry. I hate laundry. When we first got married, Sarah thought it was crazy because I would just throw all of my clothes in all the different colors, all in the washer, turn it on cold, and just throw it, run the dice, you know? She's like, what are you doing? I was like, laundry. It gets it done the quickest I possibly can. I despise doing laundry. I'm a guy that if I'm doing housework that I don't want to do, I let you know it. If I'm washing your dishes that you didn't clean, it is loud, not quiet, you know? I'm letting you know that I am working hard for you. It's the opposite of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, if you want to love Jesus, young women, if you want to love Jesus in your marriages, take joy and be good at running your household. Be kind about it. He's setting up this picture of a person who loves well because they understand how they are loved by God. And then he finishes by saying, be subject to your husbands. It's a really fascinating clause here. So you might read that and think that wives are going to be told by their husbands what to do. In the Greek, there's three different voices in the Greek, right? You have active and you have passive like we have. You have a middle voice. And the middle voice is what happens when you take on not only all the action, but all the consequence of the act action, Right? So it's not just, you know, I moved the car, active voice, or the car was moved, passive voice. But in the middle voice, it's I moved. So I am the cause of the action, and I experience all the action myself. This is in the middle voice. What he's saying to women is you should want to, you should desire, you should be subject to your husbands, and they shouldn't have to tell you to. It's not a command for husbands to run their households like kings. It's a command for women to love in a self-serving way. Just like Paul talks about husbands doing in Ephesians 5. He's saying, love in this kind of way. And it's going to, be, it's going to mean, you might have to give some things up. It's, it's going to mean that you might think you have all the freedom in all the world to do all the things you want to do. And Paul says, no, you don't. In a culture, in a Cretan culture, in our culture that celebrates the 
highest level of freedom, he calls wives here, young women here, to scale back their freedom so that people might see a bigger, better picture. And then he moves on to, we're gonna get the second half of that in a second, but he moves on to young men. And to the men, he talks about like this. He says to the men, encourage younger men likewise to be self-controlled, showing yourselves to be an example of good works in every way. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and a sound message. So, so just like with the wives, he, he talked about this idea that you're going to be good managers of the household. Everything else kind of fell under that umbrella to young men. He's talking about them to be self-controlled. And do you know why? Self-control is not something that young men normally do well. Some people said, really? Um, Literally, we have science now that backs this up, right? So the last thing that's formed in our brains is the frontal cortex. And because that's the last thing that formed, that's what regulates cause and effect. That's what regulates, you know, cost versus benefit. That's what regulates impulses. And women, that's usually done by about 18 or 19. Some men, it's done at, I don't know, 47, 26, right? So, so with some men, it's between the mid to late 20s. So he looks at these men where society in the first century world is built around them and for them. And he says, this is what you're supposed to do. You are supposed to first and foremost be self-controlled. It's a fascinating ask in a world that self-control wasn't necessarily sought out and celebrated saying you're supposed to do things that aren't just for you. You're supposed to do things that aren't just about your desire, but about your temperance for the good of others. One author said this, I thought it was great. Western culture values self-expression instead of self-control, self-fulfillment instead of self-denial, and independence instead of submission. So much more so in that culture. And in that culture, he looks at these men that have the freedom to do whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want. And he says, hey, your guiding principle is self-control, not desire that drives your action. And really what it, it paints the picture of, as he says, do this in every good way. And the word there is literally in every rhythm of your life. May you be guided by self-control and how you treat others and how you teach the message of the gospel is what he says there in verse six and seven. And what he's meaning is like this, this, this life of meekness, you know? If you ask most men, give me three things you want to be in life, meekness probably doesn't hit high on that list. It definitely didn't in the first century world where power was currency. Meekness is, is simply the bridling of our power for the good of others. It's limiting what we can control so that others can see who's actually in control. It's, it's this idea that we can do but don't do because we have perspective. I'm a very competitive person. And my best friend growing up was a guy named Tyler. And he went to be a missionary in Germany, and I went to visit him. And we said for years and years and years, one day when we get old enough and have a family, that we will never, ever, ever, ever let our kids beat us at sports. The day they do that, they'll have earned it, and they will weep tears of joy when they're 36 and I'm 90, you know? Um, when they finally conquer my athleticism. And, and I remember we go to Germany, and he's living with his family, and they have two small kids. One is uh, six and one is three. And they said, you guys want to play soccer? And I said, yeah, let's go play soccer. We're going to crush these kids. And it was the kids versus us. And, and the kids loved it because they could speak German and we had no idea what they were saying. And they just got the biggest kick out of that, you know? So we start playing and I score a goal because I'm three times their size. And then, and then my buddy Tyler lets them score. And lets them score again. And I said, man, what, what, are you, what are you doing right now? We are better than them. And he said, yeah, but we're going to let them win. And I said, why would we do that? That's not going to teach them anything. They have to grow up, you know? And he said, because it's better for them. 
because I don't need to win to prove that I'm more athletic than them. This idea of meekness, it's what Jesus did in Philippians when he says that I humbled myself, came down, and I was obedient to death, even death on a cross. That I bridled my power so that we might see the bigger picture of God unfolding all around us. Be self-controlled. Don't all the time control everything in a way that only benefits you. Live with this level of meekness that, that governs and guides how we're supposed to run and rule our world and our household and our relationships and our families. And in a first century world where meekness was not celebrated and men could do whatever they want, this was profoundly different. So he says, Wives, you're going to give up your freedom a little bit. And men, you're going to give up your freedom a little bit because there's a bigger picture. And then he dives into the third group here. He says, in this context, slaves are to be subject to their own masters in everything. And so he's transitioning from different socioeconomic groups, right? And what he's doing as he moves out of younger men and younger women is really calling them into a system of a level of maturity, And simply put, as he moves, he's saying, hey, this is what maturity is. Maturity is when you have discipline and you choose discipline over desire. And here's when maturity lands, when finally over time, that thing which you're disciplined about becomes your desire again, right? That's what maturity literally is. It's, I will do these things that I'm forced to do, but don't necessarily want to do. So one day I'll want to do what I used to be forced to do. That's called being a grown up, right? Everybody pay bills? Yes? Okay. You know? And so he's saying, do those things and grow up. And then he tackles an even harder subset. He looks at slaves and says, slaves, be subject to your own masters in everything. And this was hard. Every time we've tackled this issue, I just wish Paul would have wrote, and slaves, it's just wrong and stop, you know? But he doesn't. This is one of the questions that, that plagues Christianity from a standpoint of people that don't want to believe in Christianity. Is how, how could God allow this to exist? And you have to understand that the Bible wasn't written to get rid of all the evil in the world. It was written to change the hearts and minds of people so that we might change the hearts and minds of cultures. It's an inside-out book all the way. It's not a top-down directive. It's saying, if we change as a people, look what we can change in our world. That's the book of Titus. It starts by saying, this is how you change leadership in a church. But more than that, if families change, then communities change. If communities change, then the world changes and sees the beauty and greatness of the gospel of Jesus. And so he looks at slaves and he says, be subject to your masters in everything. This might sound like a broken record, but we're going to do this again. We're going to talk about how different slavery was then to now. Way different. About a third of the world was probably slaves back then. It wasn't antebellum South slavery. Sometimes you entered into it on purpose. It wasn't forever. Most times they paid you a living wage. When Paul talks about slavery in the New Testament, he he talks about it from a perspective of it's not good, but we're going to change how we see it. We're going to change masters, how we treat the slaves around us. I love what F.F. Bruce said about it. He said what Paul's letters do is to bring an end into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. And, and when you play out the Christian ethic over time, if you follow the ways of Jesus, that's exactly what happens. That's why Christians started a movement to abolish slavery in this country. Should have started earlier, but we got it done eventually, you know? That you can't hold to the injustice of people and the justice of God at the same time. And so... He, he looks at slaves as a subset of a group of people that follow Jesus, and he says, be subject to your masters in everything. And then he takes it one step farther, and he says, do what is wanted and do not talk back, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. That phrase there, wanted and not talk back, some of your translations are going to say, do what's pleasing to them. 
So if you're a slave in the first century world, you weren't treated with much respect. You were working night and day for someone else. So you did what you needed to do to get the job done. Paul says do more than that. Paul says you are subjugated, but instead of just doing what you need to do, do what you need to do to please your master. Think about that. Profoundly different. Don't just do the bare minimum, even though you're in an unjust system. Do what is wanted, what is pleasing, and in doing that, don't talk back, but be encouraging is the implication. And don't steal, but showing good in all faith. The two things that were pretty rampant in the first century slave world is that you didn't talk well about your master, and then you stole every chance you could because you felt like he was stealing from you, (laughs) your time and your life and your opportunity. It's what Paul does, is what we talked about at the beginning. He takes a system, and he says, look, this system is bad, but I can show you where the gospel looks beautiful in the system. If you live and love like this, your masters then will see a difference in you and... And like I said, in other parts of the scripture, he talks about the idea that masters then are not exempt from how God calls them to live in a way that shows the beauty of Christ in all the different socioeconomic places and spaces. And what he does with all three, so he asks all these three groups, major groups, men and women and slaves, to, to give up some of their freedom for the good of something else. If you go back through, we're going to go back through it now, you get to see kind of his big idea, which is basically that your liberty cannot limit someone else's ability to see God's goodness. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Because there's a bigger picture. Women, men, slaves. Your liberty cannot, should never, limit someone else's ability to see God's goodness. Because right after he says to the women, hey, you're going to be good in the household, he says, so that the message of God may not be discredited. You know? Literally what the, the text there says in the Greek is so it might not be blasphemed or slandered. That, that your life might not paint a picture of God that is inaccurate. That's why in the Old Testament, when it says don't take the Lord, your God's name, in vain, it's not a magic formula around that. It's just saying that God's name is always good. And when we don't use it in good context, it paints a bad picture of the God that we follow. And so he says, live in a way that doesn't discredit or that doesn't slander the God that you follow. I don't need to give you examples here. We've all known people that say they're Christians that don't act like they're Christians. We've all known pastors that say that they love their people and then don't. We've all seen Christians that don't live up to or into the calling of Christ because we're broken people. And when people do that, you know what they do? They take away from the name of God. They take away from his goodness. They don't take away from his actual goodness. They take away from his perceived goodness. And that's a problem because people get the wrong impression of the God that we say is beautiful and good. And he says, so you're going to limit some of what you can do because God's renown is more important than your freedom. You know? And then when he's talking to the men, he says this. He says, do this and have a sound message that might not be criticized, that cannot be criticized, so that any opponent will be at a loss because he has nothing evil to say about us. The word there used is literally shameful. So what he's saying is that that people will try to bring shame on you for following Jesus, but when they do that, they'll realize that really the shame is on them because you're so above board. It's like if you get in a big fight with your spouse, and let's say it's you never do enough around the house, you never clean, and then you get home and like the house is spotless, and you walk in like, I shouldn't have said that. That was on me, you know? The idea that I'm trying to bring shame on you, but I have no grounds with which to do it. 
Give up your freedom of control. Give up your freedom of desire so that when people see your life, they see the beauty of the gospel and they have nothing else to look at but that, you know? And then thirdly, to slaves. He says, and it's kind of building here, right? So don't do anything where people can say anything bad about Jesus. Don't do anything that makes any, any kind of follower of Jesus look guilty or shameful. And finally, he says, in order to bring credit to the teaching of God, our Savior, in everything. Some of your versions there, I like the translation better, say in order to make the gospel attractive. Now, I love that phrasing because what he's doing is he's saying, make following Jesus beautiful. I like that he says attractive there because um, there's a difference, right, between attractive and hot. You know that. There's a difference between attractive and hot. So when I was talking about the short story before, those shorts my wife wore were in no way, shape, or form hot. Nothing about it, not even a little bit. But we were talking about it yesterday, and she said, I did wear them more. And I said, you did. And she said, and that's why one of the reasons why you married me, because you value that characteristic. It was attractive. I said, you're right. That's great. You know? I said, you knew what you were doing. <laughs> you know? But don't wear them now. Um, there's a difference between attractive and hot. We, we live in a church world sometimes where we try to be hot and not attractive, you know? Fog machine Jesus, everybody. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that, but sometimes the substance is taken away instead of the beauty and reverence for God that is good. He's saying make the gospel not just fatty, but make the gospel beautiful, something that sustains and lasts because the world needs to see the beauty of God. And if you're a slave and you live in a way with devotion and love towards somebody that didn't merit your love at all, that you shouldn't love by all cultural means, it's gonna show the beauty of the love of Jesus when they look at you and say, how can you treat me like this, and you say, because this is how God treats me, what else can I do, you know? It's this beautiful picture of a gospel that's bigger than circumstance or situation, and looks at people and says that this is something I want to follow. Because throughout time, you know what's beautiful? is sacrifice, self-sacrifice for the good of others. That's a gospel that we're called into. That's what Jesus calls his people to model and do again and again and again. And I fundamentally believe as a people that we choose beauty. We choose beauty in all we do. You, you might not like what you choose or like what you think is beautiful, but you choose beauty. Go back, go back to the garden, right? First sin, Genesis 3. God said, I made this world and it's amazing. Just don't eat this fruit. Don't eat this fruit. And, and they got in that moment and they said, you know what's more beautiful in this moment to me than a God that's good is my own autonomy. I want to know what's good and bad. And in this moment, this is better for me. They were wrong and they regretted it. But we choose beauty. Now, again, we might not love that beauty. It's one of the reasons why I think there won't be any sin in heaven one day. Because you might ask, well, if we sin the first time, why won't we sin the next time? Because we will see a resurrected Christ. And a resurrected Christ is more beautiful than the Christ that Adam and Eve saw. Because then we see the love and the grace and the sacrifice that God has for us. They didn't know about that because sin wasn't in the world yet. We choose beauty. And so Paul, writing to this culture, to these people, trying to transform families, says, make the gospel beautiful. In Philippians 2, it's this text that talks about Jesus. And it talks about what Jesus did for us. And it talks about the beauty of what, how Jesus lived so that we might see God. And, and starting in verse 6, it says, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
so that through his humility and meekness, through him giving up freedom, we might see the beauty of God. He says, women, men, and slaves, live in such a way that people don't see your freedom, even though that's not bad, but sees God's beauty. So he goes on this teaching, and he says that, men, your liberty can't limit someone else's ability to see God, but I think a better way to say it is pretty simply that, that everyone has the role of making God real to somebody else. Regardless of your age, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of whatever class you fall into, every one of us, every one of us has the role and responsibility of making God real to somebody else. And that's the most important thing. And and so today, simply as Paul talked to them and as the scripture speaks to us, we ask the question, are we living in a way that makes the gospel beautiful? Not just good. (laughs) Are we living in a way that makes the gospel beautiful, not just true? Think about that. You know, it's that whole adage, do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? Are we living in a way where the beauty of Christ is our best good? And that means sometimes we got to (laughs) sacrifice. We got to lay down some freedoms or lay down our ability or our, our desire to be right or have the last word or fill in the blank. Do we live in a way that makes God beautiful? Because we choose beauty. And Paul's writing is saying in a culture that doesn't understand the goodness of God, live in a way where people see the beauty of Christ. And look, if, if you don't know, ask somebody. Probably not like your mom. They're going to say, yeah, you're doing a great job, right? Maybe ask a friend of yours that doesn't know Jesus. If you don't have one of those, find one of those. They're important, you know? And say, hey, do I live in a way where Jesus is attractive <laughs> or not? And ask why. I think every day, if, if we wake up and say, how am I making the gospel beautiful today to someone else? It's a good rhythm to guide our days. Simple question we can ask in the morning and at night. We can ask our friends and family, how are you making the gospel beautiful today to those around you? It should guide our interactions as a family and in society because people choose beauty. And sometimes that comes at the cost of our freedoms, but it's worth it because we sacrifice so that others might see the goodness of God. I think about, go from one uh, pandemic to another, I think about uh, a plague in, in, in the early church in 250 A.D., It's called the Plague of Cyprian. And it was massive. Um, About 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. A day were dying. And so in in, in that world, when people died, they didn't know why, they just knew it started. So so people fled. They fled the city. They ran out like mice. They they wanted to get as far away as they could because it was just a more concentration of death. And, And what's beautiful about the Plague of Cyprian is in that moment, there are authors, not Christian authors, that write about the Christian response to that pandemic. And what they write is, as people ran out of the cities, Christians ran into the cities, and they sacrificed their lives for uh, a chance to be compassionate to someone else. There were bodies stacked on the side of the roads, and what they would do was, if you were sick, they would put you on the side of the road with the dead people, and just wait there, and you'd rot, and you'd die. It sounds awful, it was. Christians ran in. One historian in the third century said this, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. 
Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Look, this is not meaning that we're going to run into COVID units. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they made the gospel beautiful in a culture that needed to see it. I'm saying they simply asked themselves, what does love require of me right now and how can people see the beauty of the gospel, not my individual freedom? And I think in our culture now, we're fighting over all these freedoms and we're fighting over what we have and we're fighting over my right, my privilege, my good. We need to ask the question, are we making the gospel beautiful? Because that's what transforms people and cultures. And that's when people really see that Christ is good. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that we get to be pictures of something so much bigger and better. That that we get to be pictures of a gospel that transcends time and places, that transcends governments, that transcends subcultures, that transcends people and places and is good for all included. I'm thankful that you've allowed us to be pictures of God's goodness. May we make the gospel beautiful in how we live. May we be a people that put aside individual preference for the purposes of the gospel. And just right here, right now, as a a church in Double Oak, Texas, might we live in a way in this community where people that don't know or love Jesus notice the difference that Jesus brings to our families. And ultimately our communities they see the beauty of God. Pray these things in the name of Jesus.